This episode of TV's Top 5 is brought to you by the Stars limited series, Mary and George. Julianne Moore and Nicholas Galitzine star in the scandalous true story of Mary Valliere, who molded her beautiful and charismatic son to seduce King James I. Quite the moment in history. See why the Hollywood Reporter calls it a delicious drama. Mary and George, for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series and all eligible categories. Mary and George is now streaming on the Stars app. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. You're listening to episode 249 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the one, the only, the magnificent... Mr. Daniel Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, my friend? It is a lovely, sunny day in Los Angeles, and we haven't had enough of those this week, so all is nifty. How you doing? Uh, as we record this, the first spring training game of the season is airing. I am pumped. Baseball is back. Not on my TV. My TV is currently off, but certainly looking out the window, it looks like spring training season, and that's encouraging. As opposed yeah. to, as opposed to when it looked like it was biblical flooding season at the beginning of the week. So, yay! Yeah. Not so much a fan of it. Entirely reasonable. Yes. Well, uh, without further ado, let's kick things off with how what we usually do. We'll start off with headlines. Number one. Hulu has picked up the half-hour comedy series Chad Powers based on the sketch that aired on ESPN+. Plus From co-creators Glenn Powell and Loki showrunner Michael Waldron, Powell will star in the comedy, which counts Peyton and Eli Manning as executive producers. Elsewhere, Netflix is reteaming with made creator Molly Smith Metzler for a new limited series, this one called Sirens, which explores women, power, and class. That would be former TV's top five guest Michael Waldron, uh, not former TV's top five guest Molly Smith Metzler. So, <laughs> and not <laughs> for lack of trying, but whatever. Indeed, true story. Made really good show, incidentally, but neither here nor there. Uh, <laughs> Continuing along on the casting front, Dennis Quaid will play a serial killer in Happy Face, a new Paramount Plus series from, yes, also former TV's top five guests, Robert and Michelle King. And this just in, HBO has renewed True Detective for a fifth season after Night Country ended its run as the most watched installment of the HBO anthology. Showrunner Issa Lopez will again steer season five as part of a new overall deal with HBO. And speaking of True Detective, what is going on with franchise creator Nick Pizzolatto, Dan? I mean, <sighs> wow. Wow, indeed. Uh, look, we we either could have done this as a wholly standalone segment, or we could wait until HBO picked up another season minutes before we recorded, and we'll just talk about it in this context, which is probably the, the best and safest way to do it. Uh, yeah, um, Nick Pizzolatto definitely. Um, this will this will give him more opportunities to uh, put his his Instagram foot in his Instagram mouth or whatever other orifices, whatever. Uh, no, <laughs> look, I don't know. Um, for people who haven't been following, and it's always important that we give context because some people, it turns out, do not exist on social media one hundred percent of the time. 
Uh, Nick Pizzolatto, of course, was the creator of the first three seasons of True Detective and the primary steering force and all of that. He is still credited as an executive producer on the fourth season of True Detective, uh, which was not his creation. It was, as you say, created by uh, Issa Lopez. And so, yeah. And since the show premiered, well, initially, reviews were very positive for the new season. Uh Somewhere between rapturous and extremely positive, my review was positive, and it's sort of on the lower side of uh, reviews of the show. So anyway, um, and we can talk about this in a couple seconds, things that, (laughs) under the heading of things Nick Pizzolatto could have done and didn't do... Uh, What he did do was somewhere around the mid-season, he uh, did an Instagram post about how this was not the show he would have made and he was all grumbly and grouchy. This, of course, uh, empowered, apparently, there's a whole brigade of Nick Pizzolatto fans out there who were waiting for the the carte blanche to tear into Issa Lopez, etc. And Nick Pizzolatto, given the opportunity to say, no, 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 please don't do that, uh, did whatever the opposite of that is. And after the finale, he posted a bunch of very, very negative comments, shared them with his readers, uh, readers who were also making Piss extremely... Heads? <laughs> See what I sure, let's go with that. Piss heads. Um, piss heads, piss ants, whatever you want to say. Uh, <laughs> They are what they are. Um, And so he then deleted the post that was sharing the negative post, but then put up another post for people to, quote unquote, just comment as if to say, oh, no, no, no. I'm just putting up a a tabula rasa for everyone to give their own opinions as if he hadn't been cultivating only hostility towards the new show. And so, yeah, that's how Nick Cozzolato has been been handling uh, the current success of True Detective. And the thing for which he's still getting paid, Dan. Oh, God, things still getting paid, still uh, comfortably credited in the opening credits. yeah, look, the the thing I have to say is that on a human and empathetic level, I think that every single person in whatever their job is understands the thing that is going through Nick Pizzolatto's head and has been for six months. This is not, to me, an unfathomable fathomable reaction. It is an entirely human reaction. Anybody who is in any job at some point in their life will have somebody take on something that was theirs and they will have to sit back and be like, okay, that was mine. It is not mine anymore. It is either better than the thing that I was doing before or worse. How do I respond? And I think that everyone has options in response. The first option and the easiest response and the, let's just say human default response is silence. It's like what you learned as a kid, right? If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Especially in an, an industry where people can get canceled for, I mean, far less and have gotten canceled for far less than than what he's been doing. And it's the optics of it, Dan. I mean, look, if someone were to take over TV's top five, I would be really, really upset that the show went on without me. But I would be happy for for you and for our listeners, that it continued to live on, even if I didn't have anything to do with it. That said, I wouldn't be posting any public opinions about, oh, you know, you know, like it, that's just not how I was raised. And I I just, the optics of this, as uh, our friend, dear friend Marissa Rothman pointed out on social uh, recently was you have a 
well-to-do, straight white dude who is being critical of a franchise that that he created, chose to leave, and it's run by a, a Latina woman. Like the optics of this alone are horrible. And it's kind of incredible that nothing, that there's no recourse. Like I'm really kind of surprised that that there's not this this a bigger uproar other than people just sit popping popcorn and, you know, pulling up his socials and, and, and watching the sparks fly as entertainment. I think the recourse is that that people have either been jumping to his defense and and showing affection for him and all of that, or people have been somewhat incredulous. Uh, but yeah, like like I said, the, the first course of action is is silence. And that is the easiest course of action. It might be the one that might cause you to sit antsy in your chair every Sunday night as you see people out in the world commenting on this show. But it still is the easiest thing on earth to do to simply not say anything. If you, he, he is not the first person in this industry to have a TV show or a movie or anything where they had a contribution to it. And his contribution is huge. This is true. And then to have it taken either out of their hands actively or to have moved on to other things regardless. But also anyone who has written a book that has been adapted. And if you follow authors of books whose books are turned into TV shows, some of them will spend weeks and months leading up to premiere of TV shows talking about how great the thing is because they're aware that, you know, rising tides lift all ships and uh, TV adaptations sell books. But some of them don't say anything. And that's their way of, you can read behind between the lines. It can be their way of saying, this is not necessarily the story I wanted to tell. Or this is an abomination that destroyed the story I wanted to tell. You can read into it whatever you want. Nick Pisolano decided he didn't want to read into it. The, the simple thing that would have gotten him in zero trouble at all would have been the day before the premiere to have done an Instagram post with him posing for a picture with Woody Harrelson and, and Matthew McConaughey from way back in the day. And it says, uh, the true detective story is, um, is deeply personal to me. It's the source of the career that I have now. I have only happy memories. This was such an important thing for me. The season that is premiering this weekend was done without my involvement. If you love it, excellent. If you don't, I didn't have anything to do with it, but I wish only luck to Isa Lopez and HBO. I hope they get out of this experience what I got out of it. Good luck. Walk away. That way people can be like, okay, well, he's clearly saying he had nothing to do with it, so he's distancing himself. On the other hand, he's also being a gracious and polite person and wishing luck to the people who made the show afterwards, where, as you say, he is a credited executive producer. And it's not as if that's a default. Well, maybe it's a default thing, but it's not as if it's a thing that you can't get away from. You can have your name not be in the opening credits of this TV show that you had nothing to do with. I, I think I feel you can request to have your name removed and you can request that the compensation be redistributed and, oh, and not yeah. and, and choose to not profit from someone else's work. And I, that's I, not the case here. I, th I feel as if Kerry Fukunaga had his name moved to the back credits of the show this season. I'm pretty sure he is still credited as an executive producer, but not in the opening credits. Whereas Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey are still credited as executive producers in the opening credits. And as I've said many times, 
Woody Harrelson is not watching rough cuts of episodes of True Detective. He is not an active executive producer on this TV show. Um, whereas he absolutely might have been the first season, I would assume, in fact, that he was. So, yeah, lots of different ways of of doing things that range from entirely classless, which is taking a dump on somebody else's work and actively stirring up your fan base to be hostile, which is what he has done, to generally relaxed classy, to just casually silent because guess what silence is class also it is a it is a sign of it is a sign of general human respect to not turn your supporters into hostile uh projectiles to be directed as you say against a woman of color with significantly less power and influence in the industry than you have um i mean look true detective did for nick pizzolato what night country is doing for Issa lopez so, uh, you know, th- they have that this in common and, you know, it, it's it's a bummer when you when when to, to see creators not supporting other creators. And I get it. You know, this is his baby. But it's also like, come on, man. You know, it was a mutual decision. He wanted to leave, you know, HBO when his deal uh, expired. HBO was like, OK, uh, he moved to Disney to do a show called Redeemer that was going to reunite him with Matthew McConaughey. And FX passed on the show. Pizzolatto renegotiated uh, an early exit to his Disney deal. He does not have an overall deal so far as I know. He's working on features. He's got uh, The Magnificent Seven in in development as a TV series for Amazon. And, you know, a, a couple other projects coming up that he's also working on. He's leaving HBO and leaving True Detective has not seemed to harm him at all. There, there is no so evidence. So I'm very curious to hear from him at some point when he decides to speak publicly outside of social media and to field actual interview questions about his response here because it's just – I just don't understand how, how, how people do this. So it just goes against every fiber of my being. Again, I, under, I understand. I just think you should also have the <laughs> – you should have the secondary voice in your head that says this is not the right way to do it. And again, I'll say this also, there are reasons to to have reservations about Night Country, uh, True Detective Night Country, that don't in any way involve being uh, sexist, racist, or anything else. I think there are flaws in the structure of the season. I think that, as I've said before, I think it would have been a much better season at eight episodes versus six episodes. I rewatched the the finale this weekend, and there are parts of the finale that I find incredibly satisfying. And then, despite the fact that the finale is 76 minutes, uh, there are parts that, to me, are, are so obviously... Uh, vestigial organs from plot lines and characters and twists that never got fully developed. And, and it's a little disappointing. And I hope, I truly hope that whatever the biggest takeaway that HBO has in getting a fifth season and keeping Isla Lopez on board is that if she comes in and says, my next idea for a season of true detective is an eight episode season that they give her eight episodes to do it because uh, I think I think this would have been a better season of television at eight episodes, and I happen to think it's a good season of television. I I would rank I would rank these suckers uh, uh, season one, season four, 
uh, season three and season two. That would be the order I would go on on True Detective seasons. I still think the first one is better. I think it is a, a tighter piece of structured storytelling. I think the second season, the fourth season is really good. Uh, particularly just the world that it builds. And then the second and third seasons, to me, both have things to recommend them and also things to bang your head against the wall. Well put, my friend. Well put. Number two. Up next, it's time for another installment of What the Bleep is Up With, one of our recurring segments that we, for whatever reason, haven't had the opportunity to do for a little while. Um, In this week's case, it's What the Bleep is Up With, Freebie. Leslie, what what network are we talking about here? I'll do it once and then I'll stop. Freebie. Excellent. Um, <laughs> this week, Adweek reported that Amazon was planning to quote unquote sunset its free ad supported platform Freebie likely in the spring. This has then been followed by suggestions that that may not be exactly what's happening. Leslie, what the bleep is up with Freebie? Well, let's talk first about Amazon's response to the Adweek post. Amazon has denied the report and issued only the following statement, which I will read verbatim. Quote, there are no changes to Freebie. Amazon Freebie remains an important streaming offering, providing both prime and non-prime customers thousands of hit movies, shows, and originals all for free. End quote. So thanks, Amazon. I really do appreciate the clarity that Freebie continues to exist in this moment, but the statement does not address the central premise of the Adweek story, which is the future of that platform is completely and totally without merit. So when you have ads on Prime Video, which Amazon now now has, you effectively now have two services one that people pay for in order to get free shipping on household items that now comes with ads on all of your originals and a second service that's totally free offers much of the same content also with ads. So one's free, one isn't, both have ads. One comes with free shipping for your toilet paper. The other one is just a downloadable app named Freebie that used to be IMDB TV rolls right off the tongue. So it's it makes from like from my standpoint, my, my I compared this to uh, Jay Penske's empire, uh, our our beloved uh, owner uh, who owns Deadline and Variety and the Hollywood Reporter among other assets. All of them, we all kind of do the same thing, different different variations of the same thing, right? Right? We all cover the True Detective renewal. We all cover the you know analysis of major deals, etc. So what's the point of having? two services that do the same thing. Well, the first thing we know is they make money on ad revenue for both platforms, which is similar to what PMC has with the with all three trades, right? We we make money or Penske makes money by selling ads on Deadline, on THR, on Variety. It's the same thing here with Amazon. They can sell ads on Freebie, they can sell ads on Prime Video. That's a double revenue source, right? Two different revenue streams, I should say. So what like does it make sense for Amazon to have two ad supported services one of which is free the other one is over 100 bucks a year you know look we've talked about fast channels right free ad supported television fast channels they're basically like like broadcast but for streaming so what could they Amazon do with this like 
there's a lot of different guesses going around and the rumors about Freebie's demise have been loud for some time, even before they introduced the ad tier for Prime. So my guess is they want to have a, and this is again, just an, a, a guess based on me reading the tea leaves of this industry. My guess is that they're looking at different tiers of streaming services, right? Like you've got, you know, you look at Netflix, right? They have, you know, the, the low cost ad tier, then you keep going up and up and up. And Hulu's got, you know, you know, Hulu with ads, Hulu without ads, live TV, et cetera. And I think that's what's going to probably happen with Amazon because look, I pay for Amazon, not because I want to watch shows on Prime on Prime Video, but because I order a lot of shit for my family and, and for my mom, et cetera. And it's convenient. But I think there's going to be a lot of people who want to continue to watch some of these shows, but don't want to pay for it because there is the fatigue of paying for streaming services. So maybe Freebie gets rebranded as Prime Free, and it continues to be an ad-supported fast channel that you can get the bulk of Amazon's originals, right? We've been you know, re reporting more and more about shows that were on Freebie that are now getting double-dipped on Prime. At some point, it's going to become an entire ecosystem, and it's a way to, to bring in more revenue, right? That's that's what this whole industry has shifted to, right? You heard, uh, you know, you I, I spoke with Landgraf. He mentioned that this big shift that killed peak TV is basically was basically created when Netflix shifted its focus to, from subscriber growth to profits. And Amazon is going to have to do the same thing, too, because especially with the, with the way that they spend on content programming, sports, et cetera, you need more revenue to, to help offset, right? And I know it's like one of the biggest companies in the world, right? And they're profitable and I get it. But at a certain point when you're spending half a billion dollars on one show, it's you're going to need to have some more revenue coming in to help justify it. So if you've got a free service, the freebie platform, then you can have Amazon without ads. You want to pay an extra $6 a month on top of the 100, 100 bucks plus to subscribe to prime it's you know like that's what i think is going to happen um what is happening in the immediate future is amazon just announced that they are going to enter the upfront space which is a giant pitch for advertisers right it's the dog and pony show that we talk about since we launched this podcast years ago so this is what you're seeing now is basically freebie is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place they're trying to figure out internally what's going to become of that service and in the meantime they're seeing more of these shows migrate from Freebie to Prime proper, right? It's exposing them to a different, to a bigger audience, which with the Prime viewership subscriber base, et cetera. So, yeah. So, what happens next? Your guess is as good as mine because I'm still waiting on the renewals for Primo and High School, and I don't think either one of them are coming because I think both have been off the air for what a year, two. I can't keep up. I, I both are it's two Both deserve extra seasons and should be on a bigger platform. I believe it's two years now on high school, which sadly probably rest in peace to that one. And yeah. Primo, it's been a year and you know, that's, that's longer than most shows should be allowed to sit. Uh, well, okay. But so the Adweek story said the sun setting would begin in the spring. And as I said, when <laughs> we started this podcast, it's beginning to feel a lot like spring out there. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So are, are we just going to be sitting here until suddenly Freevee ceases to exist? Is there? <laughs> uh, what I'm guessing is that some kind of an announcement, like this is what the Adweek store said, was basically that maybe you could expect an announcement pegged to upfronts, which they just announced that Amazon, yes, is actually participating in upfronts this year for the first time. So it's going to be mid-May. So I guess we've got to wait a couple of months until we can figure it out because it sounds like Amazon hasn't quite figured out what they're doing with it yet either. So stay tuned for another What the Bleep is going on with Freebie. Up third, HBO is making a change to the way non-subscribers watch clips of John Oliver from last week tonight. Number three. This week, the Emmy-winning series returned for its 11th season, but HBO instead opted to delay the release of the main segment from each episode from its traditional Monday debut on YouTube to Thursdays. Why, you may ask? Hmm. Let me think. Can you see an obvious reason that people that they would do this, Dan? Uh, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say, money, Leslie. Yeah, they want more people to subscribe to HBO Max and watch the show on Max. Yeah, <laughs> this is a good segment. Okay, so <laughs> all right, great. Next, number four. On, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, John Oliver has has voiced frustration with the decision. Clips now come out Thursday mornings, and. Oliver posted on social media that he hopes HBO changes its mind about the strategy. But, you know, the interesting piece here is when Last Week Tonight launched more than a decade ago, there was no HBO Max, right? I think it was still HBO Go or whatever the hell they they used to call those wannabe streaming services or VOD things or whatever the hell that thing was. And it made sense to put the clips on YouTube, right? And, And... Now it doesn't because you can watch the clips. It's all on. Everything is on demand at your fingertips. All you got to do is pay the monthly fee to subscribe to Max. It makes a ton of sense. Why give away your crown jewels when you can get people to pay whatever it costs per month and they can watch it there anytime, right? Like Honestly, it's a strategy that I'm, I'm surprised other companies haven't done that, you know, and by contrast, you look at what Comedy Central and Paramount Global is doing with Jon Stewart's return to The Daily Show, those clips are out like, I would say like seconds after the episodes air. You know, it's like, you know, and and those view, those, those clips rack up millions of views, right? So it's, you're basically getting the opportunity to, to watch this stuff for free because if you're not going to pay for Paramount Plus, if you don't have cable, if you don't have HBO and you're not subscribing to Max, you don't need to because it's all right there the next day for free, or at least you know the most important parts are right. It's like watching Saturday Night Live on on YouTube the following day. 
which I'm still kind of surprised that they do that because if these clips are going viral, wouldn't it be great if instead of going viral, people were talking about it and then said, oh, shit, I want to see those clips. Let me go load up my Peacock subscription so I can watch. And I truly wonder how long Comedy Central is going to continue with the speediness of the posting of the Jon Stewart Daily Show clips to YouTube. Like, it was part of the narrative around the transition from Jon Stewart to Trevor Noah that, yes, the ratings were down wildly, but the YouTube views were up dramatically, and that was kind of being positioned as, okay, so the audience hasn't left entirely. They've just migrated to a different form of viewership. Here's how we're making sense of monetizing, whatever that. Um, But that also was a time when Paramount Plus didn't exist. And so it wasn't able to be a priority. And I I don't know if they're going to be able to want to keep YouTube as such a central part of the strategy rather than Paramount Plus, where definitely they are heavily promoting, okay, now you can watch episodes of The Daily Show the next day on Paramount Plus. You can do that. It's a good way to get away from commercials unless you have the Paramount Plus with commercial plan. But I I wonder if there's going to be a shift. And I feel like probably realistically there should be if the priority is Paramount Plus in saying, okay, well, here's a clip from The Daily Show, but it's not the full 15-minute opening segment. And uh, so far, so far, it's been the second after, basically the second after things have finished airing on, I think even on the East Coast, uh, they've been popping up on YouTube. So yeah, I'm, I, I really don't know. And I feel like there are so many uh, already confusing things about it. Like anyone who is a cable subscriber knows that, they haven't exactly successfully realigned the uh, cable listing time slot to whatever the show is doing. The first episode of of the Jon Stewart Return to the Daily Show, almost certainly your cable system, speaking of my cable system or for my cable system, thought it was going to be a 35-minute episode of television, and then it was a 55-minute episode of television, and you missed missed Jon Stewart in the correspondence, you missed whatever the interview he did with the editor of The Economist, and so you had to seek out the rest of the stuff either on YouTube or on Paramount Plus. And, you know, strategically speaking, it's not a not a bad strategy is to get people constantly swearing at their cable system until finally they simply find a way to watch elsewhere. And I don't know that that's a thing that they're tailoring the confusion around. Like, hey, if you actually want to watch the entire episode without abruptly cutting out in the middle of a Jon Stewart joke, you have to go to Paramount+. Plus. But if that were their strategy, they probably wouldn't be doing it any differently. So... Yeah, interesting how that's been going. (laughs) Yeah, you know, but speaking of of Jon Stewart, he's been back now for two weeks. Dan, do you have thoughts on what you've seen? You haven't really talked about it yet in uh, Critics Corner. No, I have not. Um, Look, it's been, as you say, it's been two, it's been two episodes, two weeks. And I think a lot of the things that people were concerned about have turned out to be the case. He had to deal this week with uh, a story from The Hollywood Reporter uh, that uh, aggregated a lot of the comments from various different people about his his tendency towards both sideism and uh, the initial segment he did on Joe Biden's age. 
Uh, I personally speaking, I don't really feel like it it was quite as both sidey as people seem to be suggesting. To to me, I'm capable of listening to that opening monologue and going the the point was actually yes, they're both old men, comma, but dot 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 whereas I think a lot of people were taking it as a well, if you acknowledge it, then you're basically just saying they're both old. And it is somewhat yes, they're both old, but one is old and recently found civil liable, civilly liable for sexual assault and facing uh, uh, countless lawsuits and, uh, you know, insurrectionists, etc. So I don't feel like he did that um, as as blatantly as some people did. On the other hand, one of the things I said that was going to be a problem with the Monday night of it all was that things were going to feel invariably dated and they were going to feel invariably dated both because any stories he was doing for the most part were stories that had been lingering around over the weekend. Uh, Also stories that John Oliver had covered the night before punchlines that social media and John Oliver and countless other people had already done. And a lot of that has felt like it was the case this past week's episode. He did basically what he did was he talked about the Tucker Carlson, Vladimir Putin interview that was 12 days old by the time he talked about it. I, I don't know how you think you're doing a, a weekly current events show if you're building 15 minutes about a two week old interview. And that to me is where some of the problems are. If, however, you're not obsessed with social media and the jokes everyone's making about things on social media and you don't watch any other late night shows and you really are just tuning in because you like John Stewart and his perspective on um, current events, which is plenty of people, I, I think it's felt exactly like you would want it to. I, I think that, he, you know, I don't feel like this is an appreciably different version of John Stewart and his sense of humor than what we were left with eight years ago. And I think that if that was what you wanted, he has delivered that completely. And I've, I've been happy to have it. I just would have rather had those exact same Tucker Carlson jokes a solid week earlier when the news cycle had been based around those things, rather than just kind of stumbling along two weeks late to a story that other people had covered and not covered badly. So I, I don't know what he's what he needs to do. I don't know what he needs to do to his taping schedule. I don't know what he needs to do to the things he wants to focus on. But if there's no new research and reporting and insight that he's providing, and he really just is talking about two-week-old news, I don't see how there's a point to that or how the point is beyond, hey, look, you like Jon Stewart. And again... The ratings have been absolutely up, and that's not the least bit surprising. Uh, For the first week, the ratings were up across the rest of the week for the Jordan Klepler episodes as well. We're going to have to wait a little bit to see whether there's a similar ripple this week with Desi Lydic uh, hosting subsequent episodes. But if if that keeps up, this has been a success for Comedy Central and it has, it has done what they wanted it to do. It, it gave the overall show a halo and it gave the Monday shows a solid ratings bump. So we'll see. But through two weeks, this is roughly what they wanted it to do. So good for them. Good for them. Number four. Up next, it's time for our 
what showrunner spotlight she's not really a showrunner but also kind of a showrunner definitely let's just call it up next our guest this week is amy schumer the actress and comedian who created writes directs produces and yes stars in the hulu comedy series life and beth which returned for its second season on february 16th the semi-autobiographical comedy also stars michael sarah as beth's husband john and in season two spoiler alert explores themes including autism and anti-Semitism. Thanks so much for joining us, Amy. Thanks for having me. So I want to get started. I binged season two with my wife, who's neurodivergent, and we both felt like we were seeing different versions of our marriage in Beth and John's story. Was it always the plan to explore autism spectrum disorder and tell a story that was so deeply personal about your own marriage? It was the plan. I was hoping that Hulu would give us the opportunity to get further into that and into a diagnosis and to explore that more. So I was so glad we got a season two, but yes, that was always the plan. And it was important to me to not enter it into the conversation like explicitly in the first season so that it can unfold sort of naturally the way that I think it, you know, it did for us and the way that it can with adults because it is so underdiagnosed and stigmatized. It's interesting because a lot of the storyline, the part of it that's autobiographical, has been in your last couple of stand-up specials. I'm curious, when it comes to something this personal and, and this specific, going back again to the ASD diagnosis, how do you process in your mind the different way that this story gets told when it's Amy doing stand-up versus Amy writing a TV show that is not exactly about Amy, but kind of is? They're just such different mediums to me. You know, when you do stand up, the goal is every sentence is supposed to end with a laugh, pretty much. And this show is that is not the goal at the end of every sentence. I guess I think that's like sort of the best way I could say it. How are the conversations different with your husband when you're going to be putting something out there in one vehicle versus another? I think they're kind of the same. Like he's involved every step of the way. He was writing consultant on Life and Beth and he has seen everything and read everything ad nauseum and helped me write it, you know, and anything that uh, that anyone feels mixed about sharing, I wouldn't do it. A lot of the biggest emotional beats, as you say, this season are carried by Violet Young and by Lily Fisher, who play young Beth and young Anne. How much was that always the plan? And how much was it you watching what they did in the first season and saying, wow, they can do this stuff? They had a lot on their plate the first season, but the plan was pretty much how it wound up. You know, like the amount of flashback we see. And then it was like, okay, we've, we saw Beth in middle school and her sister being like three years younger. And then now let's see her in high school. And then, you know, hopefully if we get another season, we'll see Beth in college. But learning these actors capabilities, it was like it felt like we could sort of that we could go there and that they could handle anything in terms of performance. Yeah, I mean, there's a storyline, a recurring thing in the flashback scenes where young Beth gets bullied for being Jewish, which even, you know, for a storyline that's set in flashback, it's obviously so timely now. For you, why was that important to include this season? You know, it was a big part of my growing up. I just thought that everyone was supposed to be ashamed of being Jewish. And I didn't really realize till, you know, college that there were people who didn't hide their Judaism because of the reaction I had for being Jewish growing up. And so we shot this a year ago, 
but it was still really relevant a year ago. Like anti-Semitism has been on the rise for a long time. So I wanted to do my part just to show like some human beings who were born Jewish, especially like a younger person who doesn't really understand where that's coming from, but just accepts it as part of life. It's interesting because those moments are the kind of moments where I can imagine that some viewers probably watch and they don't notice and I know that I personally, you know, it, <laughs> it it hits me right in the gut because I go, okay, that's that's my experience. I recognize that completely. Same. How did you want to approach how directly you wanted to go at it versus this is something that people will recognize if they know? I thought it would be powerful to not have it be so on the nose, but like a throwaway, just like it very much felt in my life, but that stuff really gets to you, you know, her ironing her hair so that she'll look less Jewish. And, you know, just the comments rather than really explain just to see them lighting the candles and just see like a moment of Jewish life. I really appreciated seeing some Judaism on the show Transparent. And it made me just think like, just that I felt like I hadn't seen very much of that in recent works. And so I, it was very meaningful to me to have it in there. Meaningful for us as well. I mean, from my experience, you know, there was a, an ABC comedy that ran for like 10 seasons called The Goldbergs that was literally about a Jewish family <laughs> in the 80s. That was, was about you. one of the least Jewish shows on TV. Just I mean, no relation, but yeah. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> but it's just, yeah. You know, it, you're right. You don't see that on TV nearly as often as we should, considering how many Jews are in Hollywood, right? I know. I feel like we've grown so used to making jokes about ourselves because we've grown up with that. And in the way that like I, I used to have a joke, I don't remember what it was, but it was something about like black people not being able to swim. And that was kind of an acceptable stereotype and joke when I was growing up. And then I learned like the history of black people and swimming in America and other places and like the sick history of that like a kid was killed in Michigan for dipping his toe in what was considered the white part of Lake Michigan and just these sad stories and and it's like so it's not funny to me anymore and so I would never make that joke now and I don't like Jewish jokes unless they're really 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 good <laughs> I felt the same you know like growing up I used to always say like my mom tried sending me to Hebrew school as a kid and I was to the point where I could read Hebrew and I could write it, but I had no idea what any of it meant. And she asked me, she's like, well, what are you learning? And I'm just like, here's what I can write and here's what I can say, but I don't know what I'm, what this is. And she's like, yeah. well, do you want to keep doing this? And I was like, no, I'd rather go play softball. And that was the end of it. And I, and I always, as a young adult, I always made the joke that the most Jewish thing about me was the bump on my nose and my last name. And I stopped making that joke maybe five, 10 years ago, because like I'm putting myself down. You know, it's so yeah. crazy to see these little, as you said, these sort of throwaway scenes that that make such a difference. To, to me, it illustrates the power of great television, right? When you see yourself on TV, when you see your experience. That's really nice to hear. And yeah, it is it is harmful to have this sort of shame attached to it that we've grown accustomed to. And I've really put my foot down with myself and um, with my comedy about those kind of jokes or putting down Jewish people in any way. And I think you're so right where, but the stuff that I felt like as a Jewish child, you know, going to Hebrew school, having a bat mitzvah, it was like, we would just learn to read and write Hebrew, just so you could sort of do your 
Torah portion, but then I really, you know, all the holidays we have, it's all about overcoming and people rising up and wanting to kill Jews and Jews doing the impossible and surviving. And so I'm really, really proud of my heritage. And, you know, there's things in the show, I did try to work a couple things in, like there's only 15 million of us left and, you know, just trying to add some information in that maybe people didn't know. Maybe other Jews don't know. Well, that's kind of what Shlomo, what, what his character is, is is there for, is he's kind of there to give the modern perspective that might not be otherwise there. How do you approach that character? Because I think he's a very interesting character because you sort of look at him and you go, okay, he's going to follow certain tropes. And then for the most part, he really doesn't. For the most part, he's kind of quirky and eccentric in his own ways. Yeah. The only trope I feel like he follows is the sort of trope of like maybe some of our parents that we relate to, you know, people who've grown up with their parents saying this kind of stuff to them. And we, I feel like for the most part, we've just brushed it off and now it seems very relevant. But him saying, you know, you need to really savor these occasions, like a woman, a Jewish woman being able to get married. And it's still like, there's a line in the play prayer for the French Republic. It's like, they call us the people of the book because we wrote everything down. And so that sort of character, like who keeps bringing us back to like, all of the different moments that Jews have been massacred over the course of history. It just, it seemed really, really relevant. And, and, you know, I'm so glad we included it. Especially, you know, right now where it's like, of course, any human being is horrified by all of war and, you know, all the death going on. And in the same breath, it doesn't make me feel like anyone should just start hating all Jews. Well, what have you, I mean, I know there's no easy answer to this, but what have you learned in the last four months about communicating that side of your identity? Hmm. I think I thought that there's a a book from David Badil called Jews Don't Count. And just in the way that Jewish people seem to be the exception to the sort of humanity, you know, like that our Congress people can't say like, no, rape should never be used as a tactic in war. Just these things, like I feel like this is a moment where it's about feminism and it's about humanity. And it's all these things that, I mean, I'm descended from survivors and have watched my uncle Alex Goodman, who did a Shoah uh, testimonial, you know, USC has these testimonials of Holocaust survivors. And they say, what do you want the world to know after he's been talking for like six hours? And he said, I just want the world to know that people are hypocrites. And I just think that's true. I think, you know, some of the people he encountered, some of the worst people were Jews and some of the best people were Jews and some of, you know, in life, like you can't generalize a group of people in any way. And it just feels like people make an exception. And it's, you know, it's by design, it's historical and it's, uh, I just, I wish people would look and get some more information from places other than just TikTok. <laughs> Where do you get information at this point? I mean, because I had to leave Twitter, for example, couldn't do that anymore. <laughs> I get information from TV's top five Hollywood Reporter podcasts. <laughs> Excellent. We can we can now use no, that. Read. We have everything we need. <laughs> I, I, I've you know I've first of all uh, you know I've been reading books. They jam books about the Holocaust down your throat from the second you can read uh, if you're active in your temple and Hebrew school and everything. And then I'm a student of history. I appreciate historians and reading actually reading books about this conflict. And Yuval Harari just says there's you know there's no like starting point for history. So you can't say, okay, from here, we're going to go. And I'm not 
on TikTok. Not really. <laughs> Somebody else does it for me. And I think I've only ever posted like 10 TikToks in my life. You know, your friends will like text, send you one. I've probably watched 10 TikTok videos in my life. So I'm sure that's healthier. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I know there's great value and people have found community and there's other great things, but at what cost? Right. Yeah. Well said. We really could talk Jewish stuff all day because we, we like to on this podcast, but good. And looking at season two as sort of a bigger story, because I felt like the first season, there was this ensemble of the show, but it was really focused on, it was Beth and John, it was Beth and Anne. As you started the writing process on the second season, what was the principle on making sure that you got these full arcs in for all of the members of the ensemble beyond kind of the core three? Well, I never obviously learned how to write an episode of TV show. So instead, I just was paying attention to how I was consuming stuff and you know, there's like, you know, oh, we don't, I don't want to watch a movie that's too long, but then you will binge eight hours of a show. So I was like, let me make something that people can watch. So I just treat it like a long movie, pretty much. I mean, there are like different themes or a different sort of highlighted character in some episodes, but it's sort of, I think usually in, in episodic television, some of these arcs would probably be more in the encapsulated in an episode. And I just didn't want to really learn how to write an episode. I don't really think any of them could stand alone in the way that, you know, that some great shows can, you know, like Atlanta is one of my favorite shows. And you don't need to know what's going on to enjoy an episode of that show. And I feel like you probably need to watch the whole thing to understand what's going on in my show. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I really love seeing more of in season two was Anne's home life and her storyline. You know, is she is she agoraphobic? Um, you know, it feels like that's where you're, the route that this is taking. But it feels like that storyline has so much more life left in it. What are you hoping that viewers take from her storyline in season two? I think that, I mean, I really want everyone to take whatever they do from it, you know, like I hope they think about their own lives and also just like to remember that you don't ever really know what's going on with someone else and that we all create these narratives about other people that, and people have create narratives about us. It's almost none of your business. It's like, you can't even keep track of what people you know, day to day people you love, because we're all just I've never been to an AA meeting yet. But I heard that it's like, this is my inside looking at your outside. And it's just like, you know, I can know how it makes me feel to have this character be behaving this way, but to really have like sort of empathy and show them with dignity and just see like, you know, someone struggling with that. And becoming agoraphobic and yeah and sort of how like causes of that and like you know just it's such a great opportunity having so much screen time like each season is like five hours so it really allots you like it still doesn't feel like enough time to really look at a person's arc and Susanna Flood who plays Anne is just so amazing and so good and just brings such life to the character you know it's like I hope that people watch it and they go I want to watch her show or I want to watch his show or you know I hope Shlomo gets a spinoff <laughs> would watch you know with a live studio audience it's Shlomo now I'm pitching <laughs> and then you could have you know the rabbi live stream the whole thing right yeah, let's get David Tell on there. That's what I want to see. One of the other things that I really appreciate about the show is how Anne constantly hangs up on Beth. It makes me laugh <laughs> out loud every single time. Yeah. Where did that come from? <laughs> That's just a running joke I've always had with my real sister, you know, like on my sketch show. If she was ever in a sketch, she would always hang up on me. Just something about going like, love you. Actually, people in my life, they say that I do that. You know, like I just... 
I hate goodbyes and I hate, you know, once the conversation's over or once, like, I remember like if I'd be visiting with my relatives, I would just so dread the part where you go around, you say goodbye to everyone, you hug, the sort of formality of it. So in my life, I usually just leave. And that goes for phone calls too. I sort of can't stand the like pleasantries and the formality of going. So I love to just rip the bandaid off. It's really funny. (laughs) Guest star wise, to me, it feels almost unfair for a single show to have Jennifer Coolidge, Maria Bamford, and Amy Sedaris all in the same season. That's and, just Margaret a lot. Cho. <laughs> and Margaret Show. Yes, and Margaret Cho. <laughs> Tim Meadows, well, yeah. How far do you go back with those comics? And what is the energy like when you get to be in a room with them? Well, Jennifer Coolidge and I have been good friends for a long time. We both love New Orleans. We both have places there and like have had many New Year's parties together and just, you know, we both sort of will go out of our way along with Bridget Everett. We've spent a lot of time going out of our way to make sure we have fun and that we're idiots together. And then Amy Sedaris, I have loved forever and we've communicated, but we'd never really spent time together. And Margaret Cho is like part of my DNA, like just one of the first comedian I ever saw their special in a movie theater and was like, foaming at the mouth so excited and was dying like crying laughing too hard and maria i've known for a long time too just from and margaret too from festivals and stuff like that but just to get to work together is amazing and so wildly flattering that they said yes but that scene with amy and jennifer they were originally supposed to play the opposite roles and they switched but i think i've never laughed that hard in my entire life and it took hours longer it probably took three hours longer than it was supposed to take with how much we were laughing breaking like please just take the camera off me like i can't do this like i just i was just just crying it's like you know when you're laughing so hard that it's not even laughing anymore i was just crying and jen Jen never breaks that much that i've seen but she was breaking and like we were just amy was probably the most professional well let's talk a bit about that scene when you start on that day what is actually on the page and how does that compare to what actually aired in the episode? I should post what that scene was written as. So that was the thing. Like I did keep going back and being like, I really want to get the joke about her thinking I've had kids and the joke about, Oh, your mom's here. And then like, Oh, she's with a guy and like he's tight buns and I want him to sit on my face. I think those jokes were pretty close to, and like the, the sort of plot of like the beats we need to hit. We just need to hit the beat that like my mom shows up and then the rest was really just and that Amy at the end of the scene was gonna say do me and then Jen I think that those were all improvised I think everything was you know her coming in saying I was back there and I thought if they don't show up I'm gonna hate their gut like just all of that was completely just from Jen's mind and just to look at her in that wig in this location like it was just absolutely ridiculous but that scene was I would say 90% unscripted just brutal to get through do you like working that way or or on a show like this do you kind of also relish the scenes that maybe are exactly as they were in the script this was the only scene that way and i planned for it knowing jen was coming so it was fine but no you can't work this way you cannot work this way it's just too expensive it would be too expensive the honor of getting to do that scene with them, you know, it was like, 
that scene is a big exception. But no, you you can't work that way. <laughs> Not when you're trying to like get, you know, the story out, whatever. But that that scene was designed just to be fun and stupid. Is there a producer who isn't you standing off to the side, looking at a watch, looking at a at an iPad, whatever it is, sort <laughs> yeah. of tapping on things for you? Oh yeah, there were a lot of people doing that and coming over and going, okay, because you try different tactics and they come in with the script. They go, okay, we need to get, you know, like yes, there were people. And I'm usually one of those people, but this scene, it was just, everything was completely out the window. And I was just like, I'm, I can't be the adult right now. And so I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't. And I felt bad for the people who were tapping the watches. I'm sure. And Hulu footing the bill. <laughs> yeah. You wear a lot of hats on this show. When it comes to going to these darker and more emotional places, what are your respective comfort levels, whether it's doing it as a writer, as a director, as an actress, and how was it juggling all of those things in season two versus season one? The things that I'm the most proud of were also the most difficult, and those were directing the flashbacks. Like, I, I for the most part, I direct all the flashback scenes. Don't tell the DGA that, but... You know, that's the stuff where it's like, I want it to be pretty close to my memory. And some of those moments were, I felt very vulnerable and, uh, you know, to be like, okay, I need to, I want to be like really strong and a good leader and guide for these young actors and have them feel, be safe and protected and having the whole crew and everybody, anybody interested. I mean, most, we're all just like, we want to go home or we're hungry or whatever, but having them know oh, this is like from her life. And that is an extremely vulnerable position to be in. How comfortable is Violet asking you personal questions at this point after two seasons of doing this? It's really not personal questions. Like she'll ask about herself as Beth. Am I excited here? Or, you know, whatever. And we just, we'll, we'll talk for like hours before we shoot to like, just kind of talk about what's going on and like what she wants, what she's expecting, you know, so she can just things can just happen to her when she's expecting something different but you know having such young actors like my main goal is just to not traumatize them I don't want to be in a biography someday I want to be a good guy and I just love these people the you know the young girls the boys like even the actors who hurt her as a young you know like it's like you still want to show them respect and they're coming from somewhere too and they're confused too yeah i mean everyone on the show is just so good full stop thanks what's the latest that you're hearing about a third season especially considering the landscape that we find ourselves in right now with the peak tv era giving way to this new wave of contraction across the industry yeah, gosh, um, that's a good way of saying it. I definitely have not heard anything about another season. The, Hulu's been so cool, and especially the executives and their marketing people. Like, it's, you know, you get a show, you do everything you can for it to be high quality, and then they can drop the ball and then the 11th hour, and they just, but they just stuck the landing so well. And I'm, I'm so grateful because I have been in many, many marketing meetings and many times where it's been painful and you feel completely un misunderstood and and so got to give a shout out to Hulu marketing. I mean, do you have ideas for for a third season and where you would want to see that story go and maybe even more than 3? Yeah. I think we'll make this show as long as they let us, but you know, the season like the sort of time of my life that I was focused on was like about 5 years ago. So, we've got a lot of a lot of material since then. Yeah, I think another season or two would be great. I 
I hope that they want to do it, you know. Put in a good word in Hollywood. I mean, I think that's what we're doing with this interview, right? Trying to get oh, people thank to, you. to watch okay, great. Life and Beth okay, because it's yeah. terrific. You both want another season, right? And we've got two viewers right here. Would watch. We are but two people. I'd watch the Shlomo sp- spinoff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So inside, I would love to do another season. I-, I would love to do that show forever. And Hulu just picked it up. So it's the, all episodes are streaming on Hulu right now of the sketch show, which is incredible. That I found that out the night of the premiere. So that was great news because it was sort of in limbo for a while there. Yeah, I I was really stunned when Paramount announced that they were removing Inside Amy Schumer from the Paramount Plus library. I I couldn't believe that considering how important that show was to Comedy Central and honestly just how great it is. So thank you. Do you own the rights to that? Does Paramount still own the rights? Is there anything that would prohibit that joke from coming back? with new episodes on Hulu? Hulu bought the existing episodes. Right. I offered to buy it. Like I, when Paramount took it down, I was like, well, can I have it? You know, it's just weird. But I can't pretend to understand the ins and outs of the mergers or tax breaks or what's going on yeah, on the business side of Hollywood, but very excited that the, that it's on Hulu now. And that, uh, and I would love to do another season. I, that show is nothing but fun and so therapeutic to get to just comment on things in that way. (laughs) When it comes to how your brain functions these days in terms of writing, how often does an idea come to you and it's a sketch idea versus it's a bigger, you know, it's a movie, it's a TV episode, et cetera? Well, that's what's so fun to have these different things the two have had them at my fingertips to be like, I think this would be better as a sketch. Or sometimes it's like, I'd like to see this idea in stand up, a sketch, and on a scripted show, you know, like this could lend itself to both. And I'd love to see both. And but every day I, you know, will just write things down that I'm like, oh, I really would love to comment on this in a sketch or, you know, just a little thing that because it's like you just get to comment on all these things in different ways. And it's a really great position to be in for somebody who likes to communicate. (laughs) I want to go back to Inside Amy Schumer for just quick follow up here. But, you know, considering that how that must have felt to have that removed from their library. Do you think that that creators need to start putting things in there or asking for things in their contracts? Like if you pull it, I retain the rights or something like that? Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. I did not know that was even a possibility. And I tried not to take it too personally, but I did think like, oh, this is such a symptom of the times we're in. And this show that I feel like is so is still so relevant and has value and I would love for a younger audience to find it and kind of see these behaviors and these things highlighted but that's good I'll talk to my entertainment lawyer about that (laughs) (laughs) and we do like to wrap these interviews with the same question what have you been watching and enjoying outside of obviously season two of life and Beth of my own show (laughs) um what have I been watching well I've been seeing some plays I've been lucky enough I just saw Laura Benanti is doing a one-woman show. Cole Escola has a show off-Broadway called O'Mary. I saw Prayer for the French Republic several times. How to Dance in Ohio, which sadly was just closed on Broadway, but that'll find a home somewhere. But on TV, I am watching Vanderpump Rules and The Bachelor. And gosh, it's like with the strike and whatever. I don't know. What shows are out there right now? What are what are you watching? What what should I be watching? I started True Detective and but I've been watching all the Oscar movies. 
I loved Zone of Interest, of course. That is like a masterpiece. And Bottoms is such a funny movie. Did you see it? Loved it. Yes. Absolutely. Oh my hilarious. lord, that was hilarious. But yeah, I'm really failing with TV shows right now. That was a wide-ranging answer. That You covered a lot of bases. <laughs> I am watching stuff. I am watching stuff, but... Before we binged Life and Beth, my wife and I watched Colin from Accounts on Paramount+. Plus. It's a uh, New Zealand oh, comedy. It's I have to watch that. Really sweet. Yeah. Patty Brommel, who makes that show, he was on the sketch show a couple of times, and I got to do an episode of his show with Tim Meadows that was called, um, uh, uh, they were just in, in cop cars. They, they just sat in the car and they never did anything. What is that show called? That was a- It was on CBS All Access when it was yeah. CBS All oh, Access God. before right. it was something else, and now I'm blanking on the right. name. Hold on. I have <laughs> right, a right. But God, that show. But but pa- Patty Brommel is so funny. And yeah, that show. Yeah, he's amazing. <laughs> no activity yes no activity no yes activity. that show that was a that was a show that was i think in australia or and then they they did it over here with him and tim meadows and god that show was so funny i it was so funny that i asked if i could be on it and i did an episode of it playing myself you have to see it i don't know where that show is now but no activity god that show killed me so funny well amy thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it thanks for having me The second season of Life and Beth is now available to stream in its entirety on Hulu. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Number five. Lots to choose from this week, Dan. You've got Apple launching a new sci-fi drama called Constellation. Netflix debuts one of its most anticipated new shows of the year with the live-action take on Avatar, The Last Airbender. Amazon drops the animated comedy The Second Best Hotel in the Galaxy. And AMC on Sunday brings back Rick and Michonne to The Walking Dead with The Ones Who Live. Dan, what you got for us? Plus, uh, once we're projecting into next week, we've got the premiere of uh, Shogun on FX. So uh, really and truly oodles and oodles and oodles of stuff. Uh, Phew, where do we want to start? So Constellation, which is basically the Halle Berry CBS drama Extant, uh, only without Halle Berry, with uh, with Numi Rapace instead, and Jonathan Banks being very Jonathan Banksy. Uh, but the the premise is something happens to an astronaut up in space. The astronaut returns to Earth, but they're very very different. What happened? Is it extraterrestrial? Is it extra dimensional? Who knows? Um, what what I will say about Constellation is that the first two episodes, directed by Michelle McLaren, are extremely well-directed and fairly effectively taught. And they're basically Apollo 13 on the International Space Station, and they work decently. Now, through those episodes, there are little hints of... Things that are mysterious with a capital M. Uh, Jonathan Banks's character, who is a NASA legend, he he walked on the moon. Um, apparently, won a Nobel Prize for something. It's kind of unclear. Um, physics, I believe. Uh, he has something on the ISS that could change humanity or something. And then there are scenes in the present where uh, Nomi Rapace's character. She says her daughter doesn't smell like she used to. Is her daughter different? Is she different? What happened to her up there? 
the big questions do not interest me in the slightest. And as a result, I watched the first two episodes and I was like, okay, sure, fine. But I don't care about anything else. I watched the third episode and there was none of the outer space stuff and none of the high tension and only the big questions. And so I moved on with my life. It, it was about that simple. But I think that people will have different responses. You you could be very intrigued by the mysteries. And the positive thing is that the first two episodes are are fairly gripping as television goes. So I, I think there's no reason why you can't sample it if you sample the first episode, you're almost certain to want to finish the second episode because it really is kind of kind of gripping. And then you'll get to the end of the second episode and you will either be like me and you'll be like, okay, that was a fine two hour movie. I don't know that I need anything else. And you'll be prepared to move on with your life or else you'll be uh, captivated by, by the thing that the show is. I was not at all. That doesn't mean though that, that Nomi Rapaz is not very good. Uh, Jonathan Banks always love watching Jonathan Banks do his grouchy Jonathan Banks thing. Uh, but yeah, did, did not care about what the series here was after the first two episodes. You may care more than I do. That's entirely fine. I will not hold it against you. I promise. Uh, so yes, premiering also end of this week is Avatar The Last Airbender, the adaptation of the very, very beloved uh, Nickelodeon series about a kid who is an airbender. He has control over air, but he is also the Avatar, which means he has the ability to also master control over the earth and water and fire and the fate of humanity and things of that ilk are in his hand, but he's just a little boy and he makes friends and they travel around and they have a, a giant flying water buffalo who uh, they say, yip, yip. And he flies and he also has a, a flying lemur named Momo, who's his buddy, etc., etc. Um, Anyway, the Nickelodeon series, which is available to stream on Netflix also, is is terrific. It, it moves wonderfully. It's bright. It's lively. It's creative. It has a, a deep mythology that you invest in. The character arcs are all very, very well distributed across the series run. It's just a really good show. It, it made our list of the best uh, TV shows of, of the 21st century so far. And yeah, it's a, it's a great show. The Netflix adaptation, uh, which was developed by Albert Kim, uh, it's look, there's the, there's the bottom line question, which is one of general necessity. And we've been seeing more and more of these adaptations of anime and anime adjacent properties, whether it's uh, Cowboy Bebop uh, and One Piece on Netflix or this. I thought that One Piece was effectively charming on its own terms and went and did its own thing fairly early on. And I appreciated that. I thought Cowboy Bebop, while it sometimes had interesting ways visually of interpreting the stuff that it was doing, I, I thought it was completely airless and I really thought it was kind of awful. Uh, this is 
closer to Cowboy Bebop than it is to One Piece. Uh, I, I don't find it a gigantic violation. I'm sure some people who are opposed will. But I, I just, I don't see the point. I don't understand what it is doing on a visual or narrative level that the animated series didn't do. And I feel very similarly to all of the quote-unquote live-action adaptations that Disney has done of its various animated properties, is if all you're doing is proving that you can use computer effects to capture some of the stuff that animation already did, then you're devaluing animation as a standalone medium. You're making animation to something that's supposed to be adapted to live action because it's somehow superior. And you're also instigating these questions like, is the Lion King the live action version? Is it live action given that nothing in it is actually live action and it's all uh, computers? But like showing that you can make a CG version of Appa the giant flying yak type creature that looks almost exactly like the animated version, only slightly photorealistic, but still computer generated. I just don't know what you've gained from it. I don't know how you've moved anything forward. And as to the actual storytelling, the animated series, it's 20 minute episodes and the series just moves And it moves so fast and it moves so confidently. And at no point do you feel like it's wallowing in anything. It does a great job, especially in the early going of having entirely standalone episodes that still have mythology developed in them. And the storytelling in the new version is just, it's just clumsy. None of the pacing is right. It's too dark. It's too slow. The character arcs are all rushed and that's especially frustrating with uh with Sokka uh who is one of the three youngsters teens who are mostly sort of on the mission it's extremely frustrating with Prince Zuko who still is probably the best part of the new series and even if the actors are good and honestly, I think the actors are, for the most part, decent. I, I don't know that there are any sort of blow-you-out-of-the-water performances among the young actors, but I think they're all decent. But they're not better than the animated versions. They're not more grounded. They're not more realistic. They're just humans. But humans aren't inherently better to animation in all cases. So um, I, I, I really disliked the first episode, I was kind of back and forth for subsequent episodes. Several of them I thought did things visually that I thought were appealing. There are a lot of guest stars who I I really love <clears throat> here. And so, you know, people like Amber Midthunder. I always like it when Amber Midthunder shows up in things. She's terrific. Daniel Day Kim, having a blast. Ken Leong, having a blast. Uh Various different people popping up here and there where you go, ah, that was someone who just wanted to come and play around in the Avatar world for a few minutes. Danny Pudi for an episode. Sure, why not? Uh, Utkarsh Ambukar in a lot of makeup so that you wouldn't even recognize him. Having a lot of fun. Great to have him here. Uh, but in the balance, I just it, the, the, the question of 
why, if you'd watched the show already and you loved the show, you'd want to watch this other than, look, it's another version of the thing that I loved already. I just, I don't, I don't know. So I'm not angry at this. This is, this is not one of those, it took everything fun about the series and, and destroyed it. I don't think that the special effects are quite good enough to justify everything that is pretty much hanging on them. This is a wildly expensive show and the special effects are fine, but I don't think they're great. I think they're, I think they're decent, but to me, they needed to be great. There needed to be a visual conceptualization. It's the reason why uh, the Wachowskis speed racer is kind of the best version of this. And I don't even think it's a great movie. Like I'm not in that cult that has said that speed racer is, uh, you know, uh, moving cinema forward. I know there are people who think that, and I don't think they're necessarily entirely wrong. I just don't feel that way, but still you watch it. And every single frame of that movie, you say there is the affection for the original movie uh, series rather, and there is the visual idea that justifies this and makes it all worthwhile. Here is what they are doing, and and I don't know that I felt that about about this uh, one piece. I mostly didn't feel that way, but I found it charming and Cowboy Bebop entirely. So no anger. It's just hard for me to fully understand why we can't just say, "God, Avatar's a great TV show." The animated version. Let's cherish the hell out of that. This doesn't add anything. Um, so premiering this weekend is AMC's Walking Dead, uh, The Ones Who Live, which, of course, is the uh, Michonne and Rick, Denai Guerrera, Andrew Lincoln spinoff. Uh, it's not quite as good as Daryl Dixon, uh, the French Daryl Dixon spinoff, but I thought it was really pretty solid and gives fans of, of those actors and those characters basically what they're probably looking for in a spinoff like this. AMC is playing specific spoilers very close to the vest, so I'm not going to say anything else about the series, other than that I mostly thought it was entertaining. The first couple episodes are a lot of exposition, but I probably can't even say that, so I think I'm just going to stop. And uh, just to conclude, and probably the biggest show and one that I'm still kind of grappling with is, is Shogun, which is FX's adaptation of the uh, great James Clavell novel, which was previously adapted as a miniseries for uh, NBC back in the day. And uh, the first thing is it's really good. It is, it is very extraordinarily well-produced. You will not see a better show this year when it comes to costumes, when it comes to production design, uh, just all top tier on every level. The ensemble, which is largely uh, Japanese actors uh, led by Hiroyuki Sonata, who is also an executive producer. Great cast. Anna Sawai, who was most recently in Monarch, the uh, Godzilla monsterverse thing, and was previously before that in Pachinko. She's fantastic. She is, to me probably a breakout from this Cosmo Jarvis who plays the Richard Chamberlain role basically is uh is is decent he kind of fits to where though my biggest problem 
with the series is. And I'm still getting my mind around how to express this. Uh, you won't hear me say this very often, but I, I don't love my review of, of Shogun. I don't think it does as good a job as I would like it to in articulating. I think it does a very good job of articulating what I like about the show. I don't think it does a very good job, honestly, of articulating what I don't like about it. I kind of boiled down what I don't like about it to uh, the the book and the original miniseries were a romance and the romance here is inert. Therefore, that's a problem. And I don't think that's exactly what I meant to say. The book and the miniseries kind of build a balance of whether the story is the story of this British slash Dutch sailing pilot who finds himself in Japan, pre-Edo Japan, uh, and doesn't know the culture, has to learn about the culture, comes in contact with Lord Yoshi Torinaga, that's the Hiroyuki Sonata character, um, and becomes kind of an advisor to him on naval issues, et cetera, et cetera. And the story is Torinaga's story. If you go and you look at what the history that it's based on, uh, the, the historical figure who that character is based on is a pivotal character in Japanese history. The white ships pilot is a real character from Japanese history and, and not an insignificant one, but you're still dealing with the dances with wolves aspect of it. And I think that the series does a very good job of right from the beginning, making it an even story. It does not say we're using this white guy as a gateway. It says, okay, he's going to be the first guy you're going to meet maybe, but it is a two hander throughout with Anna. So character, who's a translator in an important role. The problem is if you take away the focus from the white guy, but you still have him being about half of the story. That's a lot of time being dedicated to an uninteresting character who isn't given anything to do here. The choices are you can either de-emphasize that character further, which I don't think necessarily would have been a bad idea, or you give the character something to do. Now in the book, the romance is a thing that the character does. Is it wholly convincing? No, but it is a thing that the character does. There's the romance, and then there's the friendship that Torinaga and the pilot have. The friendship is devalued here, and the romance is almost entirely gone, but still parts of episodes from the book that point to it remain. So it's not about the series not giving these two characters a romance that bothers me. It's that they didn't substitute something better. And I, I do think that there is a, a hole in the series where the romance used to be. It's a hole that could have been filled with something that wasn't romance and instead mostly isn't. But it's so it bothered me a little. And in my review, I articulated it somewhat one dimensionally and you know, it happens. You might not hear me say this again. Don't love my review. Life goes on. Uh, but Shogun is still worth watching. It is still big, bold, epic television and, uh, happy, happy with how well they did so much of the show. 
For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. They help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on the social medias, or a social media, or something. She's consistently at Snoodit with two O's. I'm consistently at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. Come say hi. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, though, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That is tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.